Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity here at the AAVMC. And on this episode, I am very pleased to welcome my friend and colleague, Mr. Tony Wynn, back to the show. Tony is the Director of Admissions and Recruitment here at AAVMC. And last year, about a year ago or so, he joined me to discuss the emergence of Generation Z. Today, he's back to talk a bit more about Generation Z as veterinary school applicants and what that means for the colleges and for the larger professions. So, Tony, welcome back. Thank you, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Quick tip, Tony is literally down the hall. <laughs> yeah, I, can my, I can bang on my wall. <laughs> so, welcome back. And so, for newbies to the show, Tony, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself and what you do here at AAVMC? Sure. As the um, Director of Admissions and Recruitment Affairs, my primary mission here at AVMC really is to oversee the VEMCAS application service. The Veterinary Medical College application service needs uh, a watchful eye to make sure that it works for the best for applicants as well as schools, as well as the back ends. Um, so I spend the majority of the time in what I call applicant development. You already know you want to be a veterinary student, uh, then you need to know how to apply. And that's where I step in and say, let me hold your hand and figure out a way to make sure that you have a good experience getting through this application. So there's the applicant side, and of course there's the school side, preparing them to accept applications and receive the data and analyze data and all of that kind of good stuff. So in a nutshell, that's what I do the majority of my time. All right. Well, great. So why don't we dive right on in? So just as a recap, what is this Generation Z? And of course, like if you want for our listeners and viewers, if you want like the really nitty gritty, all the juicy details about Generation Z, please check out that previous episode that's called Generation Z in your podcast feed. But just for this kind of little primer, Tony, who are these people? So Generation Z, obviously, again, if you go through the, the actual timeline, the baby boomers became the millennials, the millennials became the X's, the X's became the Y's, and now we're at the Z's. The Z's are just coming into the application process. And as we found, as with every generation, they have their own, their own idiosyncrasies, their own behaviors, their own ways that we need to work with them to make sure that we're catering and so that they get the best results. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head the age range of Zs right now, but obviously if they're applying, they're going to be in their early 20s to mm -hmm. almost mid-20s. Okay. All right. So application is open. It's been open for a couple of months now. It has. What are, what are you seeing? What are your predictions from on high? <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting is, you know, uh, it's always a, a very uh, precautious thing when I think about how to say whether or not we're going to do well in the application process. What I can tell you is that for the application being open since May, we have a lot of applicants in there and they're starting to submit now, which is a good, a good sign. 
Um, we have seen, as you know, the trends, uh, we have seen an increase in the number of individuals in the system, as well as the number of individuals that are actually applying, as well as the number of schools they're applying to. So mm. the trends, then logic would say, we're bound to see an increase again this year. But the applicant pool is always full of surprises and uh, and we won't know to the last minute, which is part of that behavior that we need to change. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're an applicant, apply early. Apply. <laughs> of course, <laughs> we are we're recording this episode in July and the show won't launch until September. But you need to have already hit that button. <laughs> it, it applies to every VEMCAS cycle that exists from here to eternity. Apply early is a good, a good rule of thumb. So what are some of the demographic trends? And this is kind of a softball question because for folks that know both Tony and myself, they know that we work very, very closely on this. He works with the pool and I work with the research side. But let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the pool. What are some of the surprises for you? So what I pay a lot of attention to is the number of foreign nationals that are applying. We've seen an uptick over the last few years of folks who are not U.S. citizens who are applying to U.S. schools. And because of that, a few years ago, we actually went into a whole process of upgrading our system to to accommodate them better. Coursework entry, international coursework entry, and we put policies in place to help help, help usher that. And fortunately, we did that because already we're seeing a larger number of foreign nationals in the system than we did last year at this time. So that's an indication of sort of the diversity of, of folks that are coming into the pipeline and another good example of how we should be there to accommodate them when they appear at our doorstep. In terms of other, uh, there aren't any other trends that I'm seeing in the African pool right now that are that are setting off yellow or red flag. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a little early to see. Um, yeah. I'm not seeing any geographic shifts that are, are any major. I'm not seeing a shift in, in non-traditionals or anything like that at this point. Okay. So I will take the liberty of kind of weighing in here and kind of seeing, telling folks a little bit about what we have been seeing over the past two years and, you know, I guess editorializing and offering some some perspective on what I think might be happening. So, Tony, as you mentioned, the foreign national numbers seem to be up. Just as a, a point of reference for listeners, last year, only about 0.6% of the applicant pool were foreign nationals. And and so we're starting to see some increases there. We're certainly seeing increases in terms of non-white, non-Hispanic, I'm sorry, non-white and Hispanic applicants. So like, so for example, last year, about 25% of the pool were applicants of color or folks that would identify as non-white and perhaps Hispanic. And so we're seeing some growth there. We're seeing declines. We continue to see declines in our number or percentage of male applicants. Last year, it was only about 13%. We're hoping that it doesn't continue to drop, but we are seeing declines there. We're seeing about a, I don't know, for sexual minorities or so individuals who are not identifying as straight, but are answering the question, we're seeing probably about 10%, 10%, 10 to 11% of the pool and that demographic background as well. And so the other thing that I think we're also seeing, which is a kind of companion piece of information to hearing that more foreign nationals are applying to American schools, we're seeing about one in four applicants, American applicants applying abroad. 
And they have lots of, they seem to have a lot of different reasons why they're applying abroad. They are interested in that kind of international flavor and their educational experience. They're interested in, they think that there's opportunities that maybe don't exist in the U.S., in terms of seat availability. They really like those programs. It's not really just about cost, although there are a few schools where the cost of going abroad is comparable to going out of state. But we are seeing some applicant behaviors where they're kind of branching out and kind of saying, well, you know, I think maybe I want to try some different kinds of experiences. The other big thing that I will say is that we see about 22% of last year's applicants came from rural backgrounds. Um, only about 17, 18% say that they're interested in being in a rural area for their desired practice community. And so I'm not really sure kind of what's going to happen with that during the four years that these prospective applicants will be matriculating potentially in a veterinary school and kind of what that means. But that's kind of a little bit of an overview of kind of what's happening there. Oh, and one last thing is that we're also seeing probably just under one in three applicants are coming from low-income backgrounds and or their first-generation college students. And by first-generation, we mean that none of their parents, because we all know now that (laughs) families are very diverse. So it's not just necessarily a mom and dad. There could be step parents. There could be all kinds of, you know, different kinds of variations within that family unit. But no one in that family unit that is identified as a parent has completed undergraduate college. And so, yeah, so we're seeing some of that too. There's a really important distinction when we talk about applicants and individuals. You know, there's two, there's two sets. There's those who start an application, those who are in the system And then there are those that actually hit the submit button. It's important to note that if we see an increase in, let's say, foreign nationals on the system side, the question then for us is, did they apply? And if not, why? Yeah. Um, Same with men. We have a lot of men who start an application but don't end up hitting that submit button for some reason. So when we talk about these these, uh, variances in, in or decreases in numbers, we need to look at, well, did they start? Yeah. And our surveys do that. We kind of say, you started an application, why didn't you submit it um, in some cases? Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, I will say that, that for that particular line of our applicant research, generally speaking, the reason why folks don't complete an application is of lack of confidence in their competitiveness. And a lot of times those folks are not getting adequate advising. Um, they're kind of trying to wing it on their own. And so they don't really have a good, a good view of kind of what that landscape looks like. And so the benchmarks by which they're measuring... <laughs> their competitiveness may or may not be accurate. So that's, that's certainly really, something that we need to work on. That's really important for us to take a look at. And our admissions and recruitment committee is is taking a look at the application itself to make it a little more user-friendly, get a little more fair to, to those that, that might not have the opportunities that others have when it comes to applying finances, et cetera. I think it's important, important to note that it's on our radar. And it's yeah. really important for us to identify areas that are obstacles and are not giving folks a fair shake when it comes to applying. Yeah. All right. So back to these Gen Z Hmm. applicants. Tony, you've been around for more than a few years. So you've seen, so now you're really into, you know, you've seen at least kind of 
bits and pieces of at least two generations of of applicants, certainly maybe a bit of three, but what are... Oh, dear. We are seasoned. We're not old. We're seasoned. Um, but what for this Gen Z population that you're currently, that are currently in the applicant pool, what are the big hot button issues? What gets them... <laughs> ring your phone what gets them sending you crazy emails what gets them calling Pimcast? now i've got plenty of those to go around let me tell you the thing that hasn't changed with this generation is the the confusion and angst around experience hours Mm. it's not only how many is is enough but it's also how do i know if it's veterinary experience or should i list it as animal or it seems that there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding about what's what and how to categorize it and the misunderstanding about how a school looks at that. You know, a school's not going to ding you if you put something in animal experience by accident and it's really research. That's not going to hurt your application. But I mean, these this, this generation is much more, they're much more anxious and they're much more OCD about their application. What I mean by that is, and this is hypothetical, but it's a good example, a question like, do they prefer that I use a capital letter here or a small letter here? Or the age-old, should I list my experience as bullet points or should I list a paragraph? Which one's going to look better to the school? I mean, that's minutia. That is, I mean, that is, <laughs> my response is always, do what you think looks best for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't get into, well, the schools are going to prefer one way or the other because they don't. <laughs> <laughs> But it's an indication of not only the anxiety of the of the process, but it's also a really good indication of, of this generation's concern with getting it right. Mm-hmm. And that sort of leads into how do we help them if they're going to be like this? So we know behavioral behaviorally, these applicants want the want to be given the information, not have it be done for them. In other words, can you tell me where to find the right information? not can you give me the right information. Okay. The legwork, which is unlike prior generations that say, just do it for me. Right, right. So that's a good thing. The other behavioral thing is they want to be at the table. Um, when we're discussing what works and what doesn't work, they want to feel that they have a voice, much more so than prior generations I have found. How can we help you improve this process? Um, can you include us in, in that process? Mm. Great. The prior generation would, uh, you know, listen to what you have to say and then secretly go off to Google and double check that what you said was correct. <laughs> the nice thing about this generation is they're saying, where on Google can I get the correct information? Okay. Oh, just go there. Ah, thank you. Yeah. So, so it's a shift there. It's a little culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it seems a little counter to, I think, what we have been you know, we're still learning clearly a lot about Gen Z, but we also are, there's this kind of interesting juxtaposition between what you just said and this idea of this is the, you know, this is a, gen- a generation with lawnmower. Well, yeah, I guess there was um, the helicopter parents that like hovered. And then there's kind of like the lawnmower bulldozer parents that are just pushing stuff out of the way. Right. But it's interesting because what I'm hearing you say is that that while their paths may have been cleared, there is a real desire for some agency in terms of going to kind of seek out information. They don't necessarily expect the pay the way to be completely paved for themselves, but there is a, a desire 
to really kind of take on some of that agency and kind of claim ownership over um, participation in the process. Absolutely. And that and that what I call snowplow parent is really paving the way so that they have an easier time finding the correct route or the correct road mm-hmm. or whatever they're looking for. Whereas those helicopters would, you know, but look but, but look over there and, and make sure you do this and I'll do it for you. And this generation doesn't quite put up with the do it for me mentality. Okay. So does that mean that we're not hearing as many parents calling? Absolutely. Oh. In, incredibly, the number has, has very, very blatantly dropped. Very cool. Which is interesting. And yes, it is very good. <laughs> <laughs> so the majority of applicants are now Gen Z, right? So yeah. how should we be engaging them? What's the best mechanisms for reaching out to this particular generation of perspective, not just the applicants, but the perspective applicants to, to the colleges? Asking questions, which is, which is engaging them back. It's no longer a case of marketing to a generation. It's a marketing with a generation. So what that exactly looks like, <laughs> good question. I'm not really 100% sure. My inkling is that it would be better to talk personally to a group and solicit their feedback throughout the lecture rather than just say, here's what I have to say. Now do you have questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, they respond more to feeling like they're they're involved in the process of, of this lecture, for instance. Mm-hmm. I've seen a very positive response to not quizzing them, but, you know, if you were a school, if you were a vet school, how, how would you like to see experience? How, how do you, what do you think they should be looking for? And they have some really interesting ideas. And I hope that at some point we can harness that and give it to the vet schools and say, here's what your future applicants would like to see mm-hmm. and like to see how you, you manage it. Yeah. So yeah. engagement and they also value transparency. Yeah. Want something, say what it is you want. Don't don't beat around the bush. Right. Yeah. I would say that, you know, I think that that I've been around for a couple of generations of, of, of applicants and students now as well. And, and what I'm finding is that previous generations seem to be a bit more accepting about what I call the black box of admissions, right? That there's, you put information in, there's some magic that happens in the box and then either you get a letter that says, you know, here's an offer or thanks for playing, right? Um, There's a a real um, energy around demystifying that black box of what admissions is or any decision-making process. So not just admissions, but like, no, no, they want to know the ins and outs and they want to know what the process is very explicitly. Um, So there's a real high desire for transparency so that they know exactly what's going to happen. And part of that, I think, plays in a little bit to that anxiety that you mentioned um, earlier. And that is, it helps them manage that. And it helps them say, okay, I know that point A goes to point B, step one to step two. And this is how they said the process works. Now, I do find, and I don't know if this has been your experience, that if they follow all of the steps and they have the steps, they still don't necessarily get or appreciate that there is not only with admissions and with decision making in general, that there's there's both a science and an art to it. So there's a there's an expectation of, OK, but I met all of the criteria, so I don't understand why yeah. the answer might be no. Right. Very much so. Very much so. 
they, they do want to know the process. They want to know the ABCs. They want to know the, the boxes to check. And I think you and I spoke about this uh, a week or so ago about if I met all the criteria, how could I possibly be denied? Right. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't work. That <laughs> it way. doesn't quite work that way. But you met all the criteria. Therefore, we get to evaluate you right. against your peers. But, but to their defense, we feed that anxiety because you have um, a series of check boxes for school A that I'm applying to. And then a series of check boxes that are just slightly different for school B. And if you're applying to five schools, that's a lot of trails of check boxes. Mm to kind of pay attention to. And then when they get on a webinar with me and they ask a question and my answer is, hmm, every school is gonna be different when it comes to that. That kind of freaks them out. Yeah. Well, how, how do I know what I'm missing? I, I must be missing something. Right, right. That, 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 there's kind of a, a, a real anxiety around the uncertainty, right? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think that that's normal for a lot of folks, but I think that for applicants, and our applicants tend to be a bit different than some of the other health professions. Um, typically, our applicants report that they developed an interest in veterinary medicine prior to the age of 10, right? And so by the time they apply, which the average age is probably going to be about, I think it's about 23 at the time of application, they've been in this game for at least 13 years, <laughs> At least. <laughs> Typically, they're going to be in this game for closer to like closer to 20 years. Right. They, they they've had their eye on the prize. And so having kind of had this emotional investment for so long, coupled with some of these generational kind of characteristics, I think, makes for a little bit of anxiety. <laughs> it's a it's a, fe- a multi-year festering of a, a dream. Festering, festering and dream in the same sitting. Because they can't wait to get there. They can't wait to get there. And then they get to what they're referring to now as the golden door. And that's Vemcas. This is my entry. And that's why they're they're in front of that door. And some are afraid to knock. Some Mm -hmm. of them are trying to pick the lock. And others are, you know, knocking and, and following a process. And and they have, as I said, years and years, as you said, years and years and years of thinking about this and wanting it and dreaming about it. Other health professions I don't know have to to this extent right. that amount of anxiety because they've had so long to think about it and worry about it. Right. Those those anxiety pieces tend to come from seemingly kind of different different spaces, right? It's not because they've been mulling it over and having made a decision at, you know, the tender age of four that they were gonna be a veterinarian. So so you know, one of the things that I like to explore in the show is uh, a bit of generational conflict. So for those of us who are not old, but seasoned, <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> I like that. what are the challenges that make us seem like old fogies? What kind of, what does that generational kind of conflict or challenge seem like? Um, so you do a lot of web, Tony does a lot of webinars. He interacts with thousands of students every year. So what's the thing that makes you kind of go away scratching your head because there's a real disconnect? So I learned relatively early on that um, the biggest obstacle for us old fogies is not admitting to the fact that we don't know everything and not admitting to the fact that we are open to change. New students come into our lives all the time. And if we are meeting those new students with this is how it's always been done, so just get used to it. That doesn't resonate very well. 
for us to come and say, I need you to teach me what will make this get into your head is a huge, huge different reaction that we get from those students. I forgot what your question was now. Sorry. No, but I mean, it's just kind of what makes it, what's the challenge that makes us seem like old fogies. And I think that, so what I'm hearing is that there's a resistance on our part as more seasoned, seasoned. <laughs> colleagues that we don't necessarily want to admit what we don't know. And that doesn't go over well. And we are also come across as pretty resistant to change, which I think is is a presence in every generational conflict. So that doesn't make this particular one unique, but it is definitely something for us to always be mindful of. Yeah, I think, you know, we are we're sort of in a rut in academia in a way of this has been proven. This is the best practice. So this is the way we're going to do it all the time. And when you're when you are working with a, a demographic that you're interfacing with that that is telling you they would prefer change and they would like to see changes made, there is definitely an obstacle there between the two of us. Yeah. Um, those of us seasoned individuals that can say, I'm totally open to a better way to do this. Totally open to it. You just got to tell me what you want. Like I said, it makes a huge, huge difference with Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And especially making sure, as I said earlier on, that they're at the table when you make those new decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of those opportunities besides inviting them to the table? Uh, what are some of the opportunities that I really will help us as decision makers, as academicians, as educators and as future employers that really help us can, you know, to see this generation's potential? So the opportunities to see the potential is to collaborate. I mean, the, the, the major opportunity is for us to open our doors and our minds and our understanding of, of what makes folks tick. Um, that's, that's the biggest opportunity. If we want this group to be successful in five years or whenever it is they do end up getting into the profession, we want to make sure that they're trained to do that. And training them the same way we trained them 20 years ago may not be the best for the profession. Mm. Uh, But I think it's also helpful for us to understand, I'm not sure we have a good grasp on it, is what are the true needs of the profession that this particular group can fill that others may not have been able to? Oh, wow. Again, we don't have an answer for that, but it's a question that should be asked if it hasn't been asked. Yeah, yeah. But I think that the other thing I think for us that we need to do as a profession is to simply recognize them, right? We are still, we go to a lot of meetings and we will be going to a big one this weekend where I'm sure we will still be talking about millennials and millennials are pushing 40. <laughs> we got to stop talking about They should be practicing by now. Right. They're not just should be practicing. Like they've been practicing. Uh, you're right. <laughs> you know, we're at the tail end. It doesn't mean that there aren't any millennials still matriculating, but the reality is that they are out in the profession. And certainly some of those discussions probably need to pivot now to really start asking these questions around what are the needs and opportunities and expectations of and for and by Generation Z. So it's time for us to let the millennials off the hook. (laughs) And, you know, another question to ask is, is the diversity in this generation the same as it was in other generations? And, you know, you mentioned trends earlier that we're seeing an uptick or or a downtick in certain specific areas of diversity. Um, But, uh, you know, we shouldn't treat diversity just as a a 
as a word. Right. It's an organic thing that's constantly changing with the new generations coming in. We're going to see a shift. And you've heard me talk a lot about the equitability of the application process. Are we shifting to meet the needs of those different generational needs mm -hmm. in order to help them be successful, provide them the opportunity to be successful by meeting those needs? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I yeah, go ahead. I hesitate to say it, but I think that the application process and the admissions process has not so far been very good at doing that and, and, and just taking a look at the changes in, in diversity. We, we always say we want to increase the diversity of our pool, but we have to understand the pool before we can just say we want to increase diversity. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also important for us to really look at lots of different kinds of literature, right? So we're doing a lot more in organized veterinary medicine and in, in academic veterinary medicine around wellness and mental health and well-being and those kinds of things. But I think that that emerging body of literature also should inform the application process, how we think about the evaluation of applicants, not just for the purposes of making sure that they're not like so anxious <laughs> Right. that, you know, bad things are happening, but really kind of understanding what it means to fully invite folks to the profession, right? And really kind of cultivate and nurture that interest and long-term success and well-being in the profession. And I think that, that there's a growing body of knowledge that we have about former students, existing students, and now kind of applicants, that we need to kind of really be thinking about how does this continuum of information and that we have from all of these different sectors, how they learn different, how the increases in the presence or at least the diagnoses of learning disabilities and kind of understanding neurodiversity and what does that mean in terms of a classroom and how are we teaching better and what are the advancements in pedagogy and what are the advancements in what it's like to run a classroom and all of those kinds of things have to kind of be a part of the feedback loop that creates the application process. Absolutely. And I think you can probably tell me better than I could tell everybody, but it seems to me anecdotally that I've seen an increase in in this generation asking questions about service animals and about absolutely about things like that. So is that a you know is that a generational new thing or is it is it truly a reflecting a new diversity that we need to pay attention to. Do they really are these really service dogs or animals and and or well-being dogs and or in animals and how do we approach that when it comes to admissions and matriculation? Right. Perhaps. So yes, we have a series on that. It's called <laughs> Assistance Animals. <laughs> nice soft stuff. <laughs> nice softball there. I, I do think that part of it is this generation also helps us understand those big social changes that are happening, right? And so so we have to kind of pay attention to that because I think it does impact the academic and the learning environment and the way that they're taught, what they learn. I think that this group is also far more in tune with the hidden curriculum. And by the hidden curriculum, I mean, you have the explicit curriculum. Here are the classes that you take. Here are the rules of engagement. At X, it's, you know, College of Veterinary Medicine X. This is how we do things here. But then there's the, this is how we do things here in terms of behavior. And so, no, no, this is the written process, but this is how we really do things. Right. Um, and then this is these are the behaviors that your faculty are engaged in that may or may not be always what you 
hope they aspire to. Um, That's not disparaging faculty, but it's just kind of understanding that folks learn professionalism from how it's being um, modeled. They learn how to engage other people based on the modeling that they're receiving. And so trying to make sure that as seasoned folks, we are also conscious and aware and mindful of that, because I will say that to me, at least anecdotally, working with this generation, they are far more in tune with whether or not your walk and your talk match up. Big time. And they'll check you on it. (laughs) And you know, there's nothing wrong with consistency and you you shouldn't confuse consistency with not willing to change. So, you know, if you make a change, keep walking that walk and talk the same talk with that change involved. If that, if yeah. that makes any sense. Absolutely. I'll call you out in a hundred, in a second. Three months ago, you said in the webinar that dot, dot, dot. Well, some of our policies have changed since then, but you're right. You're, you know, they, they do call you out and they have every right to and good for them for doing it, frankly. Right. Yes. They're very concerned about fairness and equity and equality. They may not know the differentiate between all of those three terms, but they are quick to say, no, no, this is what you said on Tuesday. (laughs) This is what you said. Yeah. So we're recording this kind of a couple months before the cycle actually closes. It will re-release a little before the deadline. With that in mind, what advice will you give these Gen Z applicants about kind of just decision making and things to think about throughout the application process? And remember that this is not one of Tony Tony Wynn's famous webinars. So. Right. right. <laughs> It may change. Everything might change. So my my advice has probably been the same for always, and that is start early, do your research, make the decisions that you feel comfortable making. Don't let any outside forces make decisions for you. And then when you're starting to apply, apply early. So start early, do your research. Don't let outside influences. Go with your gut. Go what you feel is best for you and make the decisions. That's in my opinion, the best way to make decisions. And then based on your research, apply where you're going to, but apply early. Simple one-liner. All right. That's easy. Yeah. Well, Lisa's advice is read the directions. (laughs) Read the directions. So the number one reason, I think I've said this during our last uh, podcast, but the number one reason for an applicant to be denied from veterinary school is because they applied to schools they just weren't weren't qualified to apply to. The second reason, the second highest reason for being denied is they forgot something stupid. They didn't read the the directions. And that's, you shouldn't be one of those people. There's There's no reason for it. Read the instructions, spend that quality time. We did a study a few years ago and we found that the average applicant spent only 15 minutes reading an application. And this is, you know, an application that many applicants actually initiate back in June with a deadline in September. And so there's lots and lots of time. And yes, we know that you're setting it down and picking it up and setting it down or or not picking it up, but logging off and logging on, logging off and logging on. But take that time. You should be spending a little bit more than 15 minutes. I think if it's really if this is really that important to you, you're going to take that time. And, and, you know, I'm not I'm not judging those that spent 15 minutes and I'm sure 15 minutes reading directions they submitted. They had no problem at all. They got in there. Fine. Right. There's always exceptions, but I think the majority are probably get so worked up 
with, it's, it's the time, it's the time to apply that they make silly mistakes because they didn't kind of take a breath. Yeah. So take your time, but apply early and read those directions. So what advice do you give advisors who are working with Gen Z applicants? Because again, we're seasoned. (laughs) Right. The advising community, um, as a whole, doesn't quite understand veterinary medicine in, in, in how it's different to other health professions and advising for other health professions. So when it comes to a student who sits in front of them and says, I'm thinking about becoming a doctor, great, what kind do you want to be? I'm thinking about becoming a veterinarian. There's sort of crickets in the room. And I think it's really the advice I have for an advisor is ask questions of us. We're here to help you understand the tools you need to advise a veterinary student. Um, Of course, because we're so small in the larger scheme of the world, um, an advisor in rural wherever may see one veterinary student every three years. That, That advisor should have the same tools at their disposal as someone who sees 500 every year. Mm-hmm. And they, they just don't have it right now. Some of that's their fault. Some of it's our fault. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the advice would be, you know, have that toolkit with you at the ready and, and use it. Yeah, great. So I'm all about this. This is, this is Tony's advice hour. So what advice are you get, um, can we give and can you give, Tony, to practitioners who are mentoring this group. Like they're, they're the coaches, they're the squad, they're the ones that are like kind of helping them get to that, to that door, to the golden door. Yep. So the first piece of advice I'd give is try to be positive, honestly. The second advice would be be transparent about the realities of the profession. You're, you're there to help someone decide whether this is the right path for them. And by being negative or, or purposely steering them away is not helping them make a decision. Uh, remember, this generation thrives on being given the tools to develop their own decision. Um, so I guess practitioners should be the snowplow practitioners that, that gets rid of all the garbage and says, here's the path that you need to know. Now go forth and make your decision. Yeah. Be good advocates for yeah. this this growing crop of future students and veterinarians be, be good advocates for them. And certainly we know that, you know, we certainly know that there are very real issues and challenges within the profession, namely, of course, cost. And we spend a lot of time at AVMC talking about that. We spend a lot of programs, uh, meetings, all kinds of things talking about student debt and whether or not the return on investment, I guess, is, is worth it. But I do think that, that you're right. There's a real opportunity for us to be good advocates for prospective applicants and students to help them make good decisions, to help provide good information for them to make informed decisions, because they really are very, very interested in being you know, informed, making a solid decision, and really kind of encouraging to, to make decisions with not just their heart, but their head. Absolutely. And I think this gener- we're going to find that this generation is an educated consumer. They, des- they want to be educated before they make a decision that involves finances. Now, you and I have talked at length about when's the right time to start bombarding them with the reality of the costs associated with owning a practice. Is pre-vet 
the right time to do that or isn't it? I'm not going to say yes or no one way or the other. But I think we need to sort of be targeted at the messaging around student debt and the realities of, of those things. I think it's helpful early on just to get a landscape. You know, yes, you do have to think about finances. And if you only want to be a vet and never think about finances, you may have a tough time. And, and then leave it at that. Let them kind of find their way. Yeah. Providing information for them to, to make those decisions. So. Absolutely. So last question, the big question here is, what advice do you want to give the colleges, our AAVMC members and beyond? First and foremost, be transparent about what your process is. What are you looking for from an applicant? You can't expect to get an answer if you don't ask the question. That's the easiest way yeah. to say it. Um, you're, I think that the vet schools are fairly good at saying, here's what our requirements are and here's what you need to do to get in, but they're not very good at saying, here's how we're going to process this information that you give, and here's why we ask you to jump through these 25 hoops and not those two, whereas other schools are different. Mm -hmm. um, so the more transparent they are, the better educated an applicant can be about wanting to or not wanting to apply to a school. So I think transparency in process is important. Transparency is to why they're asking what they're asking for if they're specific to that school. Those are the two biggest, I think. Yeah, I think that, that uh, you know, we mentioned the transparency a little bit earlier in the show. And I, again, it's remember that this generation <laughs> is desperate for that and they're constantly seemingly to assess for it. But it also, that transparency helps them to manage that some of that anxiety that they have. Yeah, they know, know what to expect. Even if the decision and the outcome is or isn't what they want or deserve, but but just having a good sense of what that process is and how transparent it is helps at least alleviate some of the anxiety. Absolutely. And I think that this generation needs to be a little bit better at, needs help being better at knowing how to be human. And they're not just their academic record. I think that's very important. They're, they are the tech the, the tech generation more than any other before. And they kind of come into the process saying, well, schools are just going to look at my GPA and my GPA speaks about who I am as a person. That's not true. And as you know, as we get more into holistic admissions and competency-based, they're looking beyond those, those measures that are static. Yeah. Um, and that freaks this generation out a little bit. But I have a 4.0. Why wouldn't I be accepted? Because you don't have any experience or because you haven't shown any resiliency or, or whatever. Right. Right. Your people skills are not where we would expect them to be right, right. Um, or where we need them to be. And so go off and, and you know, and it, I think that that it's it's been my experience anyway and kind of working with students that to tell them to go off and work on those, you know, cognitive skills, those not GRE, not quantitatively, quantitative metrics, things to say, hey, you need to go work on your people skills. Hey, you really kind of need to work on this desire for lifelong learning, or you need to work on some communication skills, or you need to work on this or that or whatever. And and there's kind of a, but I passed that class. Right. <laughs> right. So I checked that box and I'm like, right. Well, you did. <laughs> However, they expect us to walk the walk and talk the walk talk the talk, if if they pass the communication class, and my assumption is they're going to have practice communicating with other people and putting that into practice rather right. than saying, I got to, you know, I, I passed that class, so I must be a communicator. Right. Put that way. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. 
I so think I, the vet schools, though, need to explain a little better. Our institutions need to explain a little bit better about what it means to represent uh, these soft skills on an application. And as you know, we're, we're going through a full review of the application to determine how can we make it easier for applicants to express those non-static data mm-hmm. type things. So hopefully we're, we're this, that's a good example of our meeting the generation to get what we need. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. For stopping by. We're really excited about the this this cycle and this crop of applicants that are kind of emerging into the profession. And we will kind of keep an eye on them and see what happens. Absolutely. So with that, Tony, yeah. where will you be keeping an eye on them? <laughs> I have recently um, accepted a position to work on the advisor side. I'll be joining the National Association of Advisors for the Health Profession as their executive director beginning um, October 2019. Um, So I'm taking all this knowledge that I've gathered from being here for 11 years and shifting the focus into those that are, are advising them into the process. So I'm still involved just in a different different way. Yeah. So we are, this is a a bit of a bittersweet (laughs) thing. We are so excited and so proud of you, Tony. We know that you're going to do great things at NAHP. Um, You've had such a great relationship with them and you've done so much for veterinary medicine and working with the advisors and the leaps and bounds that you've made. And so certainly um, while there's so much more work for us to do with the advising community, it's so wonderful to know that you're moving there. We'll have a great ally and you're going to be really doing some amazing work that's going to have that's going to touch a lot of students, not just in veterinary medicine, but across the health professions. And personally, as as a research partner, as a colleague, as a friend, I'm so excited for you. Of course, I'll start start crying as soon as I hit the record button um, because I'm sad that you're leaving, but very, very excited and proud for you. You know, you can always call Illinois and say, hey, I have an idea for a study that involves <laughs> and, you know, make it happen. So, yes, for folks that don't know, Tony and I can sit in a room and come up with like 10 research projects that we'll never have time to work on. Absolutely. <laughs> So I continue. I look forward to continuing that bouncing things off of and into our research parking lot. Absolutely. Me too. All right. Well, good luck to you. So so this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. We are available on just about every podcast app. Please just look for us. Be sure to subscribe, like and share the episodes. Very, very important. Don't hold all this goodness to yourself. And be sure to also find us on Facebook at AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast, where I post information certainly about the show, but also issues uh, related to diversity and inclusion more broadly across higher education and across the veterinary profession. So be sure to take a look at that. So with that, we will say goodbye. I will say goodbye and Godspeed to my wonderful colleague, Tony, and we will check you out next time. Thank you. Thank you.